And so I hope they feel a little bit guilty, you know, like it gives me a minimum of psychological advantage. I am honored that Jacqueline Rose is here, although I feel this as an extreme pressure because where are now my dirty jokes when the big other is here, although I will tell you something else that is much more complicated. Because I've written about this, I forgot where, I think in my last book, Traveling Paradise, I'm not mentioning this to both, but I like to repeat this. People say, oh, we live in permissive society, everything is permitted. No, it's not. Look at the, you know the story, subtitle of the book, Traveling Paradise, from the end of history to the end of capitalism. The original subtitle was Communism after the end of history. They called me from Penguin and they told me, sorry, we are a big publisher, we cannot afford a book which has communism in the title. <laughs> so that you don't get any illusions. No? Uh, so what I want to say about this, when the big other is watching you, you cannot talk dirty. Maybe this is my old age, but with me it's more and more the exact opposite. Like, since I compulsively play a certain role, almost a clown, dirty jokes, and so on, I notice that I do this not as a, you know, secret joke when authority doesn't watch you, but only for the authority. You know what I mean? Like, here to you, I can say, you know, like, I will not go into it, what I can say. All the other stuff, you know, like, I'll dig your mother out of her grave and screw you, whatever you want. But I say it publicly, but when I'm in private, I feel kind of relief, you know, my God, now finally I don't have to play that stupid role, I can be an ordinary, decent person and so on. I love this, I think, I do have in Traveling Paradise a part of a chapter on this. How? The lesson of this, I think, political, very important one, is that what we experience as brutal, transgressive behavior is not some kind of a private or secondary phenomenon. It's there that we are most tightly regulated by whatever we call it, what Lacombe calls being other, the system of social rules. That is to say, transgressions, fake transgressions, what I call inherent transgressions, transgressions which are part of the game, they do not uh, limit, sorry, they do not violate the rules. On the, of course, explicit rules are violated, but de facto, they are the most tightly regulated part of it. I was told always when I visit different countries, from United States to China. I always ask my friends about this, and I always get the, the same result. For example, okay, my big classical example that I quoted already 10 times would have been, uh, imagine a nice idyllic town in old American South in 1920s, Ku Klux Klan, and so on. Ku Klux Klan was publicly denied. But it was an inherent transgression, but my point is that, the, let's say the official ideology was Christian values, blah, blah, whatever you want. Okay, 
weekend evening we go out, we catch some black people, we, we rape women, we lynch the men, and so on. This is not a violent transgression. This is even more than non-transgressive. This is, I would say, that this is the ultimate point of social identification. And I've noticed this phenomenon. It was described in many novels about the Old South. How a guy who is an honest white Christian, even a racist, but he you finds this transgression too much. He doesn't want to participate in lynching and so on. He is excluded from community. That's what interests me. That is to say, uh, if you violate the very rules of violation, as it were, the secret rituals which really sustain a community, you are much faster excluded than if if you then if you violate. If you, as if you violate the, the, the explicit rules, like you can, whatever, standard male chauvinist examples, you can cheat your wife, you can, I don't know, not be a good Christian, don't go to church, that's all, okay, you know, to justify this you have all the stupid problems, you know, like, uh, like uh, we are all human under our skin, oh, nobody is perfect, all that bullshit. But try not to participate in the secret rituals which keep the society together. And especially somebody told me, you can correct me, I'm not sure if it's true, that especially in British establishment, or at least the old academic standard establishment, I don't know how things are now, this was very important, this was one of the ways to defend the British class and national principle, you know, like in the times of the empire, you get all those foreigners who come to study here, they may be rich sons of some Maharajas and so on, but they were of course secretly despised by rich students, so they tried to learn the proper rituals, you know, how you should behave in English class society, and they succeeded, but the point is that they didn't learn how, what, rules are made to be violated. Well, you know, the, the true, when you want to enter a social system, uh, whichever, I claim it goes from all levels, from a nation up to a family. The problem is not to learn rules. The problem is to learn higher level secret rules which tell you how to violate the explicit rules. Sorry. It's just somebody, uh, you are allowed to interrupt me, and this is not a, an offer to be rejected. Like. Uh, you've written quite a great deal about this. Yeah. But, uh, in terms okay. of it being really perverse and obscene. So you're basically saying that in order to join a community, you need to know what perverse jouissance yeah, is yeah, at stake yeah, in that community. Yeah, yeah. And need to identify with that. And Otherwise you'll be excluded. Yeah. Much not? more. Why Sorry? not be excluded? Why not just be excluded? You know, why, uh, now I will like you. Now you you uh, you awakened me the worst Marxist uh, okay. Stalinist approach. Yeah. It's easy to say to uh, maybe you are I'm probably well-standing white liberal and so on. But imagine someone who is existentially bound to a certain community and okay, it's nice to say excluded, but where where to go? You know. Even, I will, uh, 
look, it's a little bit like Greece, you know. Sorry for making this, this is unfair. I not aim you at this Brexit, no? Yeah. Many leftists are saying, why don't they proudly step out and uh, uh, screw Europe, you know? What does this mean? I had a big conflict at some international conference with an old non-aligned left uh, colonial, post-colonial theorist, Samir Amin, and we started almost shouting at each other. <laughs> because he precisely, uh, his line was, de-link, uh, like opposite of linking, that these marginalized, exploited European countries should step out of Europe, establish links among themselves, and so on and so on. I mean, easy to say, de-link, okay, where to go then? The problem is that, first, with all the criticism that I have about European Union, of course, Although, again, did I tell you yesterday this? I learned through my Greek friends that there really is almost a love affair, not quite, I'm not claiming that, between Alexis Tsipras and uh, Angela Merkel. No, no, it's not a bad joke. That she told him she really is not the bad, I'm not saying she is good, but she is not the bad spirit. She, the rumor is, all around this, that she told him openly that if it were for her, she would immediately have made a deal with him. But that, okay, that's her opportunism. That the moment she does this, she's finished politically in Germany. She's under pressure of hardliners and so on and so on. Now, even this, I take it, how do you call it in Latin, cum grano salis. Because, you know, this is what people who are, this, is, this can also be read as the nastiest way of how power functions. You know, like, uh, probably, although I still have a certain respect for Obama, for what he did, and for what he didn't do. He resisted attacking Iraq, he resisted Syria and so on. But, uh, you know, I guess if you would tell to Obama, but why didn't you close down Guantanamo or this or that or blah, blah, he would probably just tell you something like Angela Merkel, you know. Oh my God, I would love to do it, but you know, I... Either he would say, I'm finished political, or he would tell you, maybe he would even use some kind of a pseudo-Marxist theory and tell you, you know, it's not me as a person who rules here, it's of those anonymous military industrial structures, and I'm powerless against them, and so on, and so on. So, you see what I'm saying? It's the same problem. It's easy for you to say this, but what if, for example, you are a pathetic example, I'm sorry, you are a student who, both of us, nonetheless, especially me, we are not, you know. But, uh, ah, incidentally, I cannot resist it, even if uh, uh, Jacqueline is here. Uh, this is how I answered a guy, feminist, who uh, attacked me for, uh, is this male chauvinism that I uh, married a younger wife? That my wife is 30 years younger than me. And my idea was, it was, of course, a bad day to go, but I like to take you should look things into a context. With age, the difference is getting smaller, you know. Like, now I'm 66, she's 36. But wait a little bit. When, when she will be 1,000, I will be only 1,030. She was a great friend. <laughs> I'm sorry. <coughs> Just to go on. Yes, uh, imagine you're a young, poor student. You barely 
were able to enroll in certain prestigious institutes and so on. And it, to act pathetics, your parents were, were uh, putting aside money from when you were young, blah, blah, blah. And then, uh, uh, you know what, it, I, I would even say, no, why step out? Remain in and brutally counter-attack. Here, I think, sorry to tell you, hypocrisy is totally justified. There are situations when one should play the heroic role, you know, you tell the truth and so on. But if there is a thing we can learn from Brecht is that the opposite also goes, you know, because in this heroic outburst, no, you know, you bear your breast, I step out, shoot me, I don't care and so on. I always find such gestures suspicious, you know, they are great gestures of personal affirmation and so on and so on. Screw that. What does it do for the cause? You know, okay. But uh, 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 let me nonetheless... Uh, uh, ah, this may... Sorry, then I will go. Today you will hear a lot of theory, but uh, the latest... I cannot resist. You are, all of you now, my big other, like, things really exist socially if I tell them to you. To amuse you, I found now one of the late attacks, again repeated on me in my own country, Slovenia. And I'm telling to you just to, <coughs> you will see what madness is possible today. It concerns, that was my line of association, the above mentioned wife of mine, uh, who is younger. So, uh, the point is this was not a joke. This was circulated as a serious charge against me in all this blogosphere in Slovenia of uh, right-wingers, that I, that this proves that I am, which was an old accusation against me, which is total madness, uh, 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 high in the hierarchy of Freemasons. <laughs> if you are high in Freemasonry, uh, another guy who is slightly lower, when you are old and approaching death, it's a duty of your Freemason colleagues to make your last years happy. So one of them who has a young daughter is obliged to give you his daughter as a wife or sexual slave or whatever, so that the last years are your last years are happy. So I love this. It seriously consider that that's how I got uh, my God. When you hear total vulgar stupidities like this, I tell to myself, life still has a meaning, you know. <laughs> it did, uh, and now, you will say this is a ridiculous example. No, we live in weird times. I re did you read about what is happening now? Maybe it's already coming down, but some two months ago it was serious. In the southeast of the United States, did you read it? It's very interesting as an ideological phenomenon. There was a great outcry. The idea was this one. United States Army announced for this fall great military exercises. Texas, New Mexico there. The rumor was this one. That these exercises are just a pretext to an operation in two steps planned by Obama who we all know is a secret Muslim and uh, enslaved to Putin and Chinese and so on. The idea is that first the army will occupy Texas, New Mexico and so on, and then 
this is the first step towards delivering these southwestern states to China. And the proof is, I like this madness, that Michelle Obama, when she visited Beijing, promised this to the Chinese. So, and then I like how you just have a crazy hypothesis, and then, of course, once you have the hypothesis, proofs explode all the time, you know? How, it was total coincidence, but some big Walmart stores were closed down for purely economic reasons. Now these paranoiacs immediately started to claim that they are just emptying these big storage places of Walmart to prepare them for the Chinese units, which will enter it. Now comes the really sad thing, the really dangerous thing, which is that, okay, you will say this is the maximum 20 in crazy circumstances, 30% of the lunatic right. Then you have the, let's call it, normal Republican majority. Texas is now a Republican governor and so on. What is really shameful is that none of the big Republican figures in those states was ready to clearly distantiate himself or herself from this, you know. Just to say clearly, this is madness. No, the governor of Texas said something like, uh, like, we don't know if this is true, you know, like, uh, I'm not saying I believe it, but uh, I understand the concern of the people, and he, the governor of Texas, formally ordered the uh, National Guard to monitor exercises, military. So now the National Guard in Texas will control the will control the, uh, the, the army exercises to watch for if they will try to occupy the text. Uh, we, again, uh, you know, it's easy to claim, oh, these are, these are just uh, extreme points of madness and so on and so on. Yeah, but they are signs of some... Yes? You said something in the first week, and I've been asking you since then to in, uh, I must interrupt you immediately. Yeah. Either you call me Slavoj by name, no, no and, but no. If you do Zizek, it's a bad joke. Okay. Uh, then please, Professor, Doctor, and so on. <laughs> 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 what would you like to call Professor Joe? Personal friend, I don't take myself seriously. If you say Professor Zizek, I look back where is the professor? It's not me. Sorry, go on, please. Um, you said in the first week, the yeah. first day, yeah. that capital is the real, the yeah, real. Yeah, yeah, And we want to know how do you mean in the Lacanian uh, uh, do you do it through the symbolic? Okay. How do you do it? Yeah, yeah. Ah, I will now give you a lesson. You are obviously an agent of Judith Butler here. <laughs> who is my friend personally and so on, no? And again, I made this point, but it's extremely important. I even used it in some stupid, you know, I think uh, a couple of a month ago, Guardian did an opinion poll of what is impossible to say. And I used precisely this example before. Namely, well, first, good things about Judith. The best part in her, for me, I'm sorry, best book, I say forget gender travel and so on. Her best book for me is the most Freudian one, is The Psychic Structure of Power. She has there some, you know, in a very refined way, she describes how, for example, the, this basic, in a, the precise Hegelian sense, reflexivity of the Freudian unconscious. How, for example, 
the repression of desire turns into desire for repression and so on. And this is what Freud, what is the truly new thing, I'm repeating now myself, I know by Freud. It's not that fake Lacan, Lacan and now I will come to your point a little more. It's not that fake Lacanian, pseudo-Lacanian uh, uh, poetry of oh, desire impossible, it always eludes us and so on, and this pseudo-tragedy. Lacan is basically a comic theorist, I claim, which doesn't mean he is not talking about horrors. The whole lesson of psychoanalysis is that, you know, my old point, why are all good films about Holocaust usually comedies that when things get really horrible, tragedy is a fake. Because tragedy implies a certain subjective dignity and so on. When things are really, like, with all the respect, that's the, my recognition of the greatness of the book. Primo Levis, if this is a man, is almost a comical book. This is why, of course, one of the most terrifying books, you know. Because, you know, when he describes the, 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 uh, the, uh, the, the, uh, when he describes the, the, the so-called Muslims and Muslims, the living dead, uh, it's almost a comical description of puppets making gestures, and that's what makes it horrible. But going back to uh, Judith, and that this uh, reflexivity and jouissance, uh, Lacan's point is not that you cannot get it, oh, it always eludes you, the incestuous object, all the bullshit. It's the problem is precisely to read this together with its opposite. Jouissance, yes, is always out of reach, but at the same time we cannot ever get rid of it. You know, and that would be very simplistic classic interpretation for Lacan, for example, and I know what I'm talking about because I am the one obsessional, I mean, you have to look three seconds at me, you see that I'm obsessional neurotic, uh, obsessional symptoms. You have some desire, doing some perverse things, you don't dare to do it, so to protect yourself, you construct some obsessional compulsive rituals. What happens is, of course, that these rituals themselves became a source of pleasure. You, in a perverse way, you enjoy them. So you know, no matter how you want to get uh, rid of it, you cannot. Now, back to your point. Why are you a uh, uh, butler revisionist? <laughs> I always had this conflict with Julie. Uh, I think it concerns the notion of the real. If you understand the real in this substantial way, something too strong, out of the symbolic, it's really out there, then of course the problem is what can we do about it. But I claim two things. First, that, and I developed this repeatedly in my books, that real for Lacan is not substantial, at its most radical. You know, you should forget about all this shitty pseudonician poetry, which, to which Lacan himself, now I'm doing a comradely criticism of Lacan himself, that's why I think his seminar on the ethics, seven, is, sorry to speak as a Stalinist, is very dangerous, should be censored, should be for proper Lacanians in my orthodox Stalinist Lacanian school should be what I was talking about yesterday, accompanied by trigger warnings, you know, like danger, revisionism. Namely, uh, the way 
he describes the subjective position, he, Lacan, in section 7, of Antigone as that uh, transgressing the, our normal symbolic universe and for a moment <coughs> entering that terrifying domain of Ate, living dead, which is what? Which is too strong. It blinds us, too strong for, we cannot confront it for a long time. You can just pass through it, then you have to, you know, this idea of authentic moments as moments of brief transgression, you know, it's too strong to dwell there. You just enter it, see it, oh my God, and then you return with your hair white in five minutes or whatever, and just tell something about the horrors you've seen there. I, I think that's why Lacan, as I often written in his next seminar, which is much better, on interpretation, uh, uh, analyzes uh, Paul Claudel's great play, Lotage, The Hostage, where precisely the main hero, heroine, uh, uh, Signe de Cofontaine, is, I think, anti-Antigone. It's none of that. So what I want to say is that this, I find it crucial that uh, the real, at its innermost for Lacan, it's a purely formal entity. Imagine a certain space, let's call it a symbolic space, structured around a certain central impossibility. But this impossibility for Lacan does not have a positive cause. It's not some real from outside which puts it's a totally immanent structure of impossibility. And for Lacan, this is one of the ways to read his non-all. Every symbolic space is structured around a certain impossibility. And this would be the ultimate real, as it were. In, and uh, so, in other words, real is ultimately totally immanent to the symbolic order as its own immanent impossibility. This is why this pseudo-Kantian, this is why I always claim that Lacan is a, in this great formal sense, of course, Hegelian, not Kantian. Because the Kantian reading is, the real is the thing in itself. We cannot get it directly, it's always through our transcendental subjective perspective. No, for Hegel precisely, uh, imagine again a certain symbolic space, it has a real. It's real is again some purely formal distortion which prevents you to say it all or whatever. And Lacan goes even a step further here that the real, which is usually taken as the Lacanian real, there must be some horrible thing out there that's too strong for us, is basically a fetishized secondary effect. In order to avoid this immanent obstacle, which is purely formal, we imagine that there is some horrible thing out there, which is why, as Freud puts it very nicely, ah, no, you think I'm bullshitting, but I will uh, give you, which you know probably better than me, the ultimate example of it. Uh, look at Freud's ultimate example of traumatic scene, a real, which cannot be symbolized, blah, blah, from Wolfman, you know, the Wolfman young, he saw, his father screwing his mother at ergo or whatever. Uh, now, uh, Freud says something which is extremely important here. Freud already. 
it's not that this scene as such was from the very beginning traumatic. The young Wolfman, when he saw this, he just registered it. He didn't know what to do about it, but there wasn't a trauma. It retroactively became a trauma when Wolfman was, I don't know what, five, six years, and when he started to engage in all these sexual fantasies and so on, then he, as it were, retreated from his neutral <coughs> memory and elevated it into a trauma. So in other words, that's important. It's not just that we have fantasy formations obfuscating a trauma through some hardcore impossible to approach. It's also the contrary, that this idea that there is behind some firm, real trauma, that it, this image of trauma is the ultimate fantasy formation. It's to obfuscate what? Precisely this purely formal game. And let me give you the ultimate example here. Very simple one, I use it all the time, it's obvious to you also, anti-Semitism. Here I'm an old-fashioned Marxist. The real of a society is its class antagonism, what twists it, distorts its space, and the basic operation of anti-Semitism is that precisely you construct an external real, the Jews penetrating from outside, who uh, you see, this same operation, what is just an immanent, and, okay, now, you got the point, I repeat myself too much. But what I want to say now is that the moment you define the real like this, it becomes clear how, and that's the whole point of Lacan. He's more of an optimist here. For Lacan, the whole point of psychoanalytic treatment is that through the symbolic, we can affect the real. And why? Because you can, I like to use the old-fashioned world, revolutionize, rearrange, restructure radically a symbolic field so that this real, what was its structuring real, uh, disappears. Okay, there is another real, blah, 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 but that's another point. What I want to say here is that, uh, let me give you an example. Uh, I had now a friendly debate, at the end we agreed with Alain Badiou, he elevated the notion of equality, you know all this French political stupidity, I don't buy it, that what is impossible for capitalism, the axiom of emancipatory politics should be, he calls it, the axiom of equality, unconditional demand for equality. I follow here Marx who explicitly, repeatedly emphasized that, shocking as it may appear, that equality is not the fundamental communist demand. That equality, of course, it's a good thing, but it's still within the horizon of capitalist universe. This simple egalitarianism. Marx repeatedly claimed this. So what I want to say is this, that and then Alain, but you immediately accept at this point that, uh, I try to be very precise here, that, uh, you know, uh, if anything is proven by this Greek case, and by many other examples, is that what uh, you calls nicely the point of impossibility of a certain system. 
need not be some big fundamental feature like equality. It can be something that, and that's the trick of intelligent political action, it can be something quite minor, which may appear contingent. Okay, why not? Let's do that. But effectively it's the point of impossibility. And that's how I claim social systems function. You think we can do this, we can do that? Yes, formally. But there are points which may appear totally innocent. But you know, it's like, I like these examples. It's like, uh, I found a good, sorry, I cannot resist, it's my nature to making these crazy jumps around. Yesterday I was with my son in the greatest uh, cultural institution for me and for my son in London, that shop on Shaftesbury Avenue, you know, Forbidden Planet. And I found there a subsection alternate history uh, science fiction books. We found wonderful things there. But I found another thing which I like even more. You know, usually when big classical works of art are popularized, what you do is you take a great classical myth or story, a Shakespeare play, a, 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 a Homer, whatever, and you or an ancient myth, and you translate it into a contemporary story, you do a comic based on Macbeth or whatever, you know, all that stuff, no? But I found there a wonderful example of doing the opposite. You know that some idiot, and the bad thing is I'm not telling you to buy it, because I looked a little bit into it, it doesn't live up to its concept. It's not executed as well as it could have been, but I found the idea wonderful. All six Star Wars movies are retold as Shakespearean tragedies. <laughs> In that blank verse then Yoda said, I will tell you the word of wisdom and so on. And I, I found this a wonderful idea, no? You see, the other way around, not let's tell, uh, I don't know what Hamlet as an ordinary story, it can be done in a funny way. I don't know if you saw the movie, for example, I think it's uh, Hamlet, Denmark, Incorporated, I forgot which version, where, where, uh, where that actor, my name, uh, okay, Kyle MacLachlan, the, the, uh, the Twin Peaks guy, is the evil king, and uh, I forgot who, not even McGregor, another guy is Hamlet, which is set in today's New York, the state is a big multinational corporation called Denmark Corporation and so on, and it works nicely, but nonetheless, I find it much more attractive to take a cheap contemporary narrative and elevate it into, you know, treat it as, as the tragedy. But, sorry, back to my main line. So this point of impossible, yes, what you find, I found some good uh, science fiction novels there, uh, while well, my son was looking for manga and all that stuff, no? Well, uh, you know, I always love this topic. You enter a room and everything seems equal there. You have some buttons, some whatever. But then you discover too late that if you press some wrong button, everything disappears, like the walls start to crumble and so on and so on. This would be, let's say, the point of impossibility. And isn't democracy basically our type of predominant parliamentary democracy, always structured like that. Yes, you can vote whatever you want, but 
better not vote in a certain way. No, it's like that button which will destroy everything. Isn't doesn't this account for the nervosity, very vulgar example, of the Greek, oh, sorry, of the Brussels bureaucracy? It is as if the Greeks, by putting it on referendum, press the wrong button. You know, like okay, we have democracy, but not for that. Sorry, you know. So uh, just to finish. Uh, so uh, what? Uh, now I will tell you a story, you, I hope, don't know it, because I use it in one of my early books, but it's the closest I came to a perfect metaphysical experience. I was staying with, in an apartment of a friend of mine in Paris. One winter, it was a cold wave, everything was cold, uh, very cold, all frozen. I did, my God, I don't know why everything that happens to me has to be dirty in some way. <laughs> I, I went to the toilet. At the end, I simply flushed the toilet. And I pressed the wrong button. <laughs> you know why? Later it was explained to me. Because nobody used that apartment for three, four weeks. So uh, the, how do you call it, drain pipes were frozen, broken. And by pressing this, button, and before I washed my hands with hot water, of course, some water was frozen, and so it can be simply explained. But imagine an effect on me. I'm like a vulgar guy sitting on the toilet, I finish, I <laughs> flush the toilet, water runs into the toilet, okay. Then water started to drip from the roof, <laughs> then water started to flow, in 20 minutes, the whole apartment was, was like, 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 uh, like uh, what is this, half a feet at least of water. Total, and I really, for a moment, I had this metaphysical experience, you know. What happened? Am I in science fiction, you know? You press a small button, everything falls apart. Now, this is, the lesson here is political, I claim. Because the art of politics today, where, at least for the time being, we cannot, not we cannot afford, we always can afford it. This is incidentally my, the favorite saying of my uh, Jewish friend, Udi Aloni, who, you know this, he invented a wonderful counter-attack to Simon Critchley's uh, formula, which is uh, something about violence, that violence is never legal, like it's a, but sometimes you have to do it, it doesn't go other way. And uh, Uri Aloni's uh, 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 formula is to turn this around for the oppressed. Violence is always legal and legitimate. We just have to think well when it's used, you know, the problem. Okay, so uh, uh, what I wanted to say is that uh, at this uh, political level, the, uh, the art of politics today, I claim, as I repeat it all the time, sorry if I repeat myself a little bit, is not to, this is the, the catastrophic policy of the Greek Communist Party. How do they call themselves? The Kukwe. The Kukwe, yeah, yeah, always. Sounds, do uh, people make this remark? It sounds a little bit obscene, almost. You know, like something like uh, I prefer not to tell you all my dirty associations just with the name. You know, this is incidentally also my problem, although I'm part of it with that boycott divestment movement, PDS. 
Okay, but my, my dirty association is some kind of hard sadomaso gay club or whatever you, whatever. Okay, let's go on. Kukwe is simply waiting for the big radical moment. No, no the, uh, for them Syriza is a social democratic fake, blah, blah, we need, okay, okay, and they comfortably wait, no? And the result was, as I was told, that for example, in the past, they hated so much other close to them left, that they quite often voted with new democracy against Pasok, you know, just, you know, getting ready for the big moment. No, the artist, what Syriza did, they didn't want a great dismantling of the system. They just want to press on a very, what appears a very small button, you know. Just a little bit rearrangement of the debt and so on, which is a totally, as I told you yesterday, when the totally rational, a totally rational demand. Because everybody knows Greek debt will not be paid. Everybody knows, uh, uh, for example, the American debt will never be paid. And, the debt of the United States and so on. So I always laugh when they tell, oh, uh, this is one of, I lost the last of faith into him, Joschka Fischer, the ex-radical Green, then foreign minister, who wrote one of the most disgusting texts that I've seen politically. The title was Tsipras in Dreamland. And you know, it's all these vulgarities, like, oh, it's easy to be opposition, you dream, but now you face reality, you have to... No! The tragedy is that the whole politics of austerity is based on a dream of, uh, uh, as we all know, pretend and extend, and so on and so on. Now, I'm not a priori against, in this sense, dreams, fantasies, in this simple sense, because our whole economic system lives on them, our banking system, that something is in principle possible, but it should remain just possible. You shouldn't actualize it, use it. But again, in the Greek case, no, it's the Greeks who are on the side of cold, pragmatic uh, rationality. It's the big Western powers who are basically dreaming. Why are they dreaming? Oh, because it's in their profit. But what I want to say is that, so again, this would have been, for me, a change precisely, what you asked me, which, a simple modest demand, why don't we rearrange the debt a little bit? It touched the real, obviously. Or even, I'm sorry if I repeat this point, but I think it's crucial, with all the justified criticism of Obama, with his campaign for, however it was then diluted or whatever, but his campaign for universal health care obviously touched some real impossible of the American political imaginary. Which is why, as you probably know, he was even denounced as Supreme Court, proclaimed a communist, and so on, whatever you want, you know. <laughs> because, uh, why was it a good choice, I claim? Because uh, nobody could say, this is crazy communism. He could say, that, wait a minute. Many developed capitalist countries have this, Canada has it, most of Western Europe, okay, they are dismantling it, but still, at least Germany has it, Scandinavian countries have it, and so on, some kind of universal, France definitely has it, uh, universal health care. But you see, in specific American ideological constellation, a demand for serious universal health care equals pushing that uh, button. And this is also, as 
And this is the art of politics. You know, you don't say, oh, we want communism, you know. This is why I find stupid some critics of Obama, like Tariq Ali, who are disappointed by him. Fuck them, what did they expect? That Obama will introduce uh, socialism. Yeah. Uh, well, what comes next? I mean, in the sense of, well, this is a minimal intervention, but uh, is, there, is there a big regulation that the symbol is possible only after some kind of period of endurance? As, uh, as, as, because reading a text for today by Stuart Rush uh, about the role of endurance and psychologists and so on, oh, it, how, how do you actually, well, uh, how they... Your question. Because, yeah, sorry. Uh, so, I mean, maybe you should stood up and yeah. assume the, the, the role of people's leader and address uh, it. So, I would just
what I'm saying is that, again, the moment you define the real in this way, not only you can change the real uh, uh, through the symbolic, but, uh, but, uh, but uh, uh, the real is just a name for some inner obstacle, purely formal structural impossibility of the symbolic order. In this sense, again, and with this political... So again, I don't see what's your problem. I agree with you. Okay, I'll put it like this. Uh, Peter Holberg once, in a friendly way, attacked me, claiming that I'm politically inconsistent, that sometimes I, uh, uh, I advocate the politics, what I call, ironically, the politics of Bartleby. I prefer... I would prefer not to. Sometimes I appear like waiting for a big terrorist act and so on, big revolution, and sometimes modest measures. Well, my, my answer to this reproach is a simple one. Uh, what's the problem? It's like criticizing me for eating for lunch pizza and for eating hamburger. Why not all of them? There are situations, definitely, when any engagement can hurt our cause. So the only proper thing to do is to withdraw. To, because, you know, my Austrian friend, philosopher Robert Faller, developed this in a very nice way, claiming that today's pseudo-liberal open governments, that they often, when they face a serious opponent, practice what, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, in boxing, boxing sport, is called clinching, you know. You try to control the enemy by embracing him closely so that he cannot know. And he called this, in, you know, I find it so ironic that you have CLI, clinching, because Bill Clinton was the great master of this strategy. I remember when there was in Seattle, battle for Seattle, you remember, big politicians were in, demonstrator outside. And of course, Clinton did immediately the clinching. He said, we must listen to the voice of those outside, invite them in, let's have a dialogue, and so on and so on. No, at that point the right thing was no dialogue. Why? Because to accept dialogue in those terms there would have meant, because the only language, that was also maybe the tragedy of September 11, sorry, not September 11, where the only dialogue was to bomb it, no, no, I didn't think that, but, sorry, not September 11, but uh, Occupy Wall Street. You know, it was just a negative gesture, saying no. But the only, uh, if we were to accept dialogue, it would have meant, meant speaking the language of the enemy. Because they would immediately have involved that, okay, you want this, but which taxes should we raise, how we do it, who, you know, all of a sudden we would be involved in this pragmatic dealing. And uh, uh, of course, I'm not saying the opponents would be bluffing. Within the existing system, this is a problem. So again, one strategy is to know when not to act. And when my, then my, uh, pseudo, uh, my liberal friends, when they tell me, what about your dreams of terror, total revolution, you know? Isn't the politics of appeasement, slow reforms, the only viable one? I said, no, even you would admit it. There are clearly situations where you should fight brutally to the end. This, I always rejected abstract pacifism. If nothing else, I tell them, 
imagine World War II. What would you have said? No, we should not get it. We should not make it like Hitler. If we just fight Hitler, we are, you know, this would be the shitty logic. If we just fight Hitler, we are becoming like Hitler. Yes, we should become even worse. Not in the terms of killing. But in the terms of even more violent, do it. Here, I have great doubts about George Orwell, but uh, his overall vision, but here he was right when he said, no, the main task now is not peace, is to destroy fascism. With all. So there are, there are moments for radical action, and there are moments for these concrete small steps. What is important when you do these small steps is uh, to be ready for the next step, where things will get more uh, more complicated, no? And now, uh, now comes the big metaphysical question, if this was your point. Now you will tell me, okay, but then why don't simply, shouldn't we call it this uh, good social democratic reformism, step by step, step by step? Because I would put it like this. I would have been for it, totally, if there were to be a chance that this really works. But I'm too much of a pessimist. I claim that, and I quote here Alberto Toscano, the historical materialism guy, who, I don't always agree with him, but he said something very nicely. He said, maybe reformism is today our greatest utopia. You know, that we can just slowly reform it and so on. I claim that in the long term, the global system cannot really afford even modest reforms. That's the point that I made yesterday about how, if you look at what series are demanded, it's, my God, measured with 1960s. It's much more modest than Swedish uh, social democracy. It's very mainstream, but obviously we live in times where even to do an extremely modest social democratic politics you are denounced, and not just denounced, in a way you are a radical leftist. So, uh, you see my position here. I don't have any dreams with revolution. My communism is based on pessimism. I don't think that the state of things that we live in can go on indefinitely. I claim that at different levels, from ecology to now even international politics and so on, we are gradually approaching a dead end. So it's not the point that things are going on so-so and then I'm a madman who said who wants too much. No, things will go on and on even more. But allow me nonetheless now to move to the main point because I speak uh, 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 too much. Uh, first, yesterday I promised you to do a little bit of uh, 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 signification, China religion. Heidegger. Yeah, Heidegger will come. Now, the problem with China and religion is that they confirmed me, maybe they like, I don't know, from London Review of Books that the text will appear there today, tomorrow, or this week, I don't know when, in the next issue, that my text will be in and also available for free on the web. So, fuck it. I mean, read it there if you want to know. You know. So, I, let's not lose time with that. Uh, uh, okay, before I go to, uh, to uh, Heidegger and Stalinism, 
and but we will go on with this tomorrow. Uh, 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 I uh, just uh, wanted to point out, but again, basically, give, I will distribute this to you at the end. Uh, I mean, as a text. Uh, the the what really intrigues me. I wasn't just joking when I began with this. You know, publicly I say, "Fuck your mother in her grave." Privately, I'm a decent guy, and so on. I think that. There is something in the structure of today's power which works like that. And I follow here Lacan who, and Badiou who read in this way, you know, Jean Genet, his play, Balcony, Balcon. That that's the basic, that the, the importance of that play, it's more actual today than it was, is that it detected how in our so-called permissive societies, the role of mask, mask not in this superficial sense of, uh, I have a mask of that, mask in the sense of uh, insignia of power, mask in the sense of the elementary structure of castration. Don't be afraid. Don't take this as some big obscure point. By castration, I mean simply castration, phallic signifier, which I mean that phallic signifier is the signifier of castration. Let me explain it briefly, but then I will go on. But, uh, you know, Lacan's idea, I read it in a very simple way. Let's say, how do you become in traditional society a person of authority? Through a ritual of investiture, where you get some insignia. King gets a crown or whatever you get, a stupid Oxford professor or whatever. But the catch is that, and that would be for Lacan, the castrating dimension, that there is always a gap between that insignia and what you, to put it naively, effectively are in your stupid immediate identity. As we say, a king may be a dirty, stupid coward. The moment he puts on the insignia, it's the state, the authority which speaks through him. But the catch is that uh, there is, again, always a decenterment here. You know, I am not directly my insignia. To have, you may disagree with this jargon, but I hope at least you get the point. To exert authority, you have to be castrated. Castrated in this minimal sense that it's not me. It's this radical alienation. My power is out there in the insignia. Okay, and the point developed already by Lacan in his reading of Genet play, I'm not even sure in which seminar, and, and then, uh, uh, but you, in his nice short book, uh, Pornography of the Present, he develops this, is that today's power functions in a, tends to function. We are not yet there, but we move towards a different functioning where, uh, the master does not rule the figure of authority through his, her insignia, covering up his weaknesses or her, you know. No, it's that uh, the mask you wear, it's precisely what I ironically refer to with regard to myself. I dig your mother out of the grave. <laughs> I display all my obscenity, weaknesses and so on, and Paradoxically, in this way, I retained all my power. 
And it's precisely this open acknowledgement of I'm human like you, let's share some dirty joke, which far from undermining my authority, strengthens it even more. This is today's typical boss in these postmodern digital companies. It's no longer a boss who demands you to wear a tie properly dressed. No, it's a boss who comes to you, what did you do yesterday evening? Do you have a good fuck or that? apparently approach, but you know, through all this, not only he retains his authority, but even worse, his authority becomes even more unassailable, as it were. Because in this way, when he acts as if he is your colleague, if you attack him, he can play the, oh my god, why did you do me, aren't we friends, and so on and so on. So again, the structure of power where the figure of the master openly displays all its human, more or less openly, all its human weaknesses, plays a clown, makes fun of himself, and so on and so on, but loses none of his or her real power. This displaying of the human side, the appearance of the figure of a master as stupid, confused, and so on, not only, yes, you know, that would be the nice point. The traditional structure of power, I'll put it like this, has the structure of fetishist disavowal. Let's say I would be a king, and you look at me and you say, that crazy guy with all his sticks is just a jerk. But you would say, nonetheless, he is a king. So I know very well that this guy is an ordinary jerk, but nonetheless, he occupies the position of authority, he, is, he has authority. Uh, in today's figure of power, more and more, it's no longer I know very well but. The but disappears. It's I appear as a total jerk, and because of this, I have power. It's uh, precisely this, as it were, human side that uh, this open display of human side, which incidentally the relations are here much more complex. Already with the traditional figure of authority, uh, the so-called human weaknesses functions as something that sustains power. You know where I maybe you know this old example of mine. You know when I discovered this, you know I really hate this. In when you publish a book, sometimes publishers ask you to put on the last page, you know where you are described, blah blah, some personal features. You know, like I remember Patricia Highsmith, my favorite detective writer. Usually they add in her free time, Miss Highsmith and girls tulips and. Uh, I don't know, uh, it's snails, uh, snails, Carapato was full of snails, incidentally. So you add some personal features, no? And uh, I claim that this humanization is a fake. It's the ultimate fake. You know, like, let's, I claim that uh, one way to undermine power would have been precisely to force the figure of power to enact his or her whole monstrosity. None of these, but in my private life, I listen to pop music, I like, uh, I like Star Wars movies, whatever. No, you should live up to the level of monstrosity that is power. 
which incidentally I tried to do when, maybe you know this story, I like it, it's so dirty, when a publisher asked me, could I add those two lines, you know, what I do in my free time, blah, blah, no? And of course, don't be afraid, it's a lie. But I liked it as a provoco provocation to demonstrate the fate of it. I, what I wrote is in his free time, uh, uh, the Professor Zizek is teaching his small son uh, uh, pedophilia and is torturing rats slowly to death. And, so on, no? and they exploded, of course, but I told them, of course, I'm not doing it. But that's your logic, you know. My God, I don't play this game. Oh. And here I, I'm sorry if I repeat this story, here I appreciate Lacan, Jacques Lacan. Because, I'm sorry if you know the story, but it's crucial, subjectively. Uh, all the people around Lacan, when he was still alive, were bothered by this, you know, Lacan was even more of a clown that, than myself, although this is maybe difficult to imagine. He was playing a certain role in public, strictly codified. And of course, all people wanted to know, but tell me, how is he in private? No, the idea was to discover this is our stupidest, most disgusting humanist desire that, you know, don't worry, in private he's a good, warm guy like ourselves. I asked many people about this who knew Lacan from close, and I don't know if it's true, but they all told me the same story, that it was monstrous. In private, he was exactly the same as <laughs> You never got him at his own, I'm just an ordinary guy. Always these arrogant mannerisms and so on and so on. I've, I, find this, I find this a wonderful gesture. You know, that he refused to play. I claim that this gesture is much more anti-authoritarian than this gesture when you know the great king, you meet him in private and you discover, oh my god, he has some small weaknesses and so on and so on. This is why, what's the lesson from this? The lesson is a very simple one. It's that, uh, and incidentally, if you want to get at this, I propose you to read two works of art, which I really like. One is, of course, Shakespeare's, I much prefer it to Richard III, Richard II. It's all about the king being divested of symbolic insignia and what you get. And the second one, please read it, although he is a disgusting reactionary at the end, he turned out to be as a poet. Uh, uh, Friedrich Schiller, you get it for free, a good English translation on the web. Don Carlos, where the tragic figure of the king is, his tragedy is precisely he wants to have a friend, not to be treated just a king and then, okay, everything goes wrong and so on and so on. So, incidentally, at the end of Don, Don Carlos, Schiller's play, you have a figure of the inquisitor entering, which is, I think, ingenious. It's the first figure of modern post-patriarchal functioning of power. It's a blind old guy who is just pure knowledge, not a master, but the proto-model of totalitarian power. So what I want to say is that, again, <coughs> uh, back to this, that something is changing fundamentally in the structure of power, and that you can find this even I'm sorry if you know some of you this point, I repeat it. 
how American presidents function. I don't like Oliver Stone's movies too much. And it will surprise you uh, to learn, which is nonetheless my favorite of his villains, uh, Nixon, with Anthony Hopkins as Richard Nixon. Because it's not simply an anti-Nixon movie. He treats Nixon as the last genuinely tragic president. He wanted to be a serious authority, but he got corrupted and so on. And incidentally, you know that if you look at cold data, Nixon wasn't, listen, he did conclude, he did open up relations with China, he did conclude this in Vietnam, and if you look at Nixon's inner politics, every American Marxist will tell you, if you measure leftist politics in a vulgar way, how much did he raise money for education, health services, all that bullshit, and you know that Nixon is the most leftist president. Already Jimmy Carter, who was basically a good guy because of economic circumstances, has to reduce benefits a little bit. But Nixon, in this sense, was still a figure of authority who broke down a tragic person. Carter is something special, but with Reagan, we have a different logic. Self-mocking became a rule. We have Reagan was tragically the first clown president. And I mean it. I remember, look, it was unthinkable before Ronald Reagan. I remember at some press conference, he gave very few of them because he usually made, made uh, stupid mistakes, you know. But at one conference, I remember, he was asked some specific point by a journalist. And his answer was, please don't ask me that, you know that I'm too stupid to answer that question and so on. You know, this self-mocking was part of his image. Which is why I remember, I was at that point in the States, when Reagan gave some speech, it was the big sport of all mainstream liberal media to attack him, and they even composed lists of his uh, mistakes. And uh, the result was his popularity grew. It was strictly this undignified, you know, stupid, it just helped him. It just helped him. And all this, uh, uh, he made so many mistakes which precisely maybe provided, provided means to have a, a vulgar idea. Oh, he is ultimately vulgar, vulgar like us and so on. For example, I hope you don't yet know this story in the past, I often used it. Uh, I heard a press conference when he was asked, is it true that that you invite some Holocaust deniers for dinner at your table. And, uh, not me, sorry, Reagan gave an ingenious answer. He says, no, I am not a Holocaust denier. Every time that someone at my table claims that there was no Holocaust, I oppose him. Okay, the obvious question, what kind of friends does he have? <laughs> he has all the things to argue, you know. But again, it was, uh, you know who really began with this? Is somebody here, you are Brazil, close Argentina. Carlos Menem, even before, no, he played this totally undignified role. And I think this is maybe the most dangerous form of power. That's why I always claim that we are approaching a kind of a post-democratic system, but that it will not be a new Hitler, Stalin with dignity. It will be more kind of a Berlusconi type. 
you know, the guy who, I mean, I spoke with some journalists from, I don't know where, it was even when I was still friendly with them, Guardian, who told me that two days ago he was in Rome speaking with Berlusconi, and you know, if Berlusconi were to be a dignified president, he would insist to talk only about big political issues. No, the first thing Berlusconi told him was, do you hear about that bunga bunga, you know, that I organized? Do you want to see the bunga bunga room and so on, you know? You know, this is what I definitely don't like. I here agree with Judith Butler, who said that the most, he, she speaks here about, uh, although she's not usually a feminist, a feminist emancipation, that, that the way to deal today with male chauvinists is precisely to force them to openly acknowledge their authority. Because a typical male chauvinist today still asks a woman to do everything, but he pretends, oh, but we are friends, equal, and so on, and so on. No. The first feminist gesture is not to directly attack the men, but to say, fuck you, we are not equal, so please act as what you really think you are, act as a master. No. Why is this intelligent strategy? Because of the predominant ideology today, this is almost impossible. No master wants to be openly a master. You know, we have secret masters. Stalin began with this. It's deeply significant that Stalin never acted as a master. Stalin acted as even a moderate one among and so on, but it's a nice detail. Privately, his inner circle called him, if some of you know Russian, Hazyayin which is the Russian everyday term for master. But you see, it has to be, it has to be repressed, this point. So again, I'm sorry we have no time uh, to get, no, I will say cynically, I take well care that we have no time since I talk too much. Okay, but, uh, so uh, what I want to say is uh, a couple of uh, things here, you know what? Let's do it with this stupid uh, Heidegger stuff. <laughs> I will add it to the list that I will send it. Say something. But it's so boring because that's why I, I postpone it so much. Because it's so... Okay, I will say something. But it's so self-evident. On the one... Okay, I will give you just the, the gist of it, the center. You know, it's a scandal. They now gradually are publishing so-called Schwarze Hefte, Black Notes, Black Notebooks by Heidegger, which were his private, half-theoretical reflections notes. It will be a couple of volumes, each one, it's from, I think, late 20s, till late 50s, I don't know, spends all the time. The interesting thing, which is ambiguous to read, is why did Heidegger do it? What, uh, no, sorry, let me just finish something about the mask, then I will go on to Heidegger. Yeah. <laughs> it's you know, what I want to say can be nicely, I wrote this in one of my books, explained by the paradox of, how to say it in English, what do Muslim women who want to, or are ordered to do it wear, burka, burka, how do you call it? Burka, okay, but whatever, we know what it is. Uh, why, when I was in France, I was at some public debate, small, and I was surprised at how some French women, let's call them right-wing feminists, uh, reacted in a panic towards me. 
They said that they are against it, not only because they uh, think that it's oppressed Muslim women, but they said that they feel threatened by that. That it is as if you encounter a neighbor and by wearing a veil, just the slit for eyes, it's as if you are encountering a monster who appears as an alien, doesn't want contact with you. So that's already the first interesting point. They began with, we want to protect the rights of Muslim women. They end up with, we are afraid, we feel threatened. And I did a simple analysis of what are they really afraid of. I claim, I cannot give you the whole line now, it's the exact opposite of what they are claiming. It's not the mask. It's, uh, they are well aware. In practice, they know that Levinas was wrong. They know that there is ultimately nothing authentic about human face. Human face as such is a mask. It's the biggest embodied lie. This is why, I will give you an empirical proof. Proof, okay. <coughs> uh, indication, this is why it's crucial for psychoanalysis that the patient and the analyst don't look into each other face to face. Because face to face introduces some kind of human communications where, where basically two ideal egos are communicating. Face, what does a face mask? Human face. The horror of what in Judeo-Christian tradition we call neighbor. This a piece of the other. And uh, I claim that uh, that's the paradox. That I quote, when I wrote about it, I quoted a nice line from Alphonse Allais. It's a French from the turn of the previous century satirical writer who had some ingenious Hegelian Lacanian ideas. Like, uh, you know, uh, uh, the best one that I often quote is that, uh, is, is that uh, of Alphonse Allais, is that. Uh, for example, it's very important, it considers precisely a mask. Once in a restaurant, he pointed at a woman and he started to shout at her, look, what a shame, beneath her dress, she is totally naked. You know? <laughs> Absolutely correct point, theoretically. No? And so Alphonse Allais uh, had this idea that you have the dance of seven veils, Salome, and then she, takes off her dressing, and then when she is naked, that the king, what was Herodus, I don't know which king, shouts further, further. So she has to pull off her skin, and so on, and so on. And in a way, not physically. Herod was right. Your skin, your surface is still a mask. And I claim that what you get when you see a face with burqa is precisely the true neighbor. Face is not covered. It's basically you see what is beneath the face, the horror. Because that's for Lacan, even for Hegel, a true subjectivity. The stupid face, you laugh, hypocritical as we are, it's a mask. It's just that, you know, when you have a burqa, you are afraid of what is behind. Yes, but behind it's not a face. It's something much more horrible. And I give you an empirical proof, what I did with my small son because I'm a crazy evil father. <laughs> Once I approached him with a mask on, he was afraid. 
I put the mask off. Uh, uh, it's just your stupid dad. Okay. <laughs> then comes the crucial point. I put the mask back on. He was afraid again. Although he knew very well that it's just his stupid dad behind. In a way, he was afraid. When you put the mask on, you open a space, an abyss behind the mask, which is not simply the stupid reality of. No, when you put the mask on, you can precisely see what is behind the mask of your space. This is, I think, uh, the panic of against uh, Burka. It's not, oh, we want to be open communicating with each other. It's quite on the contrary. We want to go on with our hypocrisy. We are afraid of the neighbor, which is uh, who is there. And again, my son was also right. The evil subject, it's like, you know, whenever people ask me, give me an image from cinema of pure subject, I tell them, and unfortunately the last one is total flop, uh, this is one of my secret private pleasures, uh, to watch uh, Mojo Box Office and all those, you know, hits, how many, you know that uh, Terminator, the last one, earned only 28 million, which is ridiculously lovely. But at the end of first Terminator, the first one, you remember at the end when the Terminator figure is almost totally destroyed, just metal, and you get just mechanic head, and just the light is still blinking. This is the subject at its purest. And it just goes on. It moves on. This would be the pure subject of drive where all self, self in the sense of self-presentation and so on, is erased. Uh, and incidentally, this is almost the only good thing I think James Cameron did. In my universe, frankly, uh, uh, Avatar would have been prohibited. <laughs> Burned publicly. I think that, that uh, to provoke my friends that Gables did a horrible thing by burning books. But maybe, this is my cynical version of when you throw out the dirty water, you shouldn't throw out the baby also, you know. But maybe he had the right principle, he just, he burned the wrong book. <laughs> like, I wouldn't mind burning Fifty Shades of Grey and, and so on. I have my own Gables list here, you know. Okay, sorry, so let me go on. So, uh, this I think is the crucial point. This. Uh, Fear, fear of the neighbor, and I call, and this is also my problem with political correctness. Although, of course, my God, at the level of facts, when you have cases of real harassment and so on, I'm totally, brutally for correctness. But you know, what? It's a little bit like what I describe as that obsessional structure of prohibition, and then you invest racist desire or, I mean, into prohibition itself. Isn't it a little bit the same with politically correct rules? You know, you obey all the rules, you don't say black, you say African-American and so on, you don't get rid of racism in this way. It just displaces it, and I can tell you, my American friends are telling me dozens of dirty jokes which include this politically correct reformulation. For example, do you know that there is an entire game of changing in a politically correct way 
the titles of Hollywood classic films, but precisely the point is, it's race, it's real racism. Like, you don't say creature from the Black Lagoon, you know, the classic horror. You say creature from the African-American Lagoon and all that nonsense and so on. Now, I'm not for this. This is really racism. What I only want to tell you again is how this, I think, is the weakness of this politically correct translations, you know. You don't say Indian, you say Native American, which is for me horror. What? They are Native American and we are cultural Americans. So you know. I also don't like it another nice way of racism. You know, they are now discovering that so-called Indians, Native Americans, were not really the first people who lived there. That there was already another species, human, there before. And some politically correct people exploded against this, like, oh, they are trying to deprave uh, Native Americans of their primacy there. But why? Why should this prime, you know, I find this tragically wrong logic. Why should be any advantage if you were there, really, the first and so on and so on? It's horribly displaced, as if we want them to be the really wise original people there. On the other hand, everything goes wrong with universal rules, they can be misused. Do you know my joke? I'm sorry if I repeat myself immediately, I give it to you. Uh, when uh, I was in Israel, I respected BDS. It was, uh, 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 I did a public talk in Tel Aviv in a private bookstore. But it was a wonderful uh, figure of soft state repression, which I reminds me of my socialist youth, you know, when there were some half-dissident theater companies. And the authorities didn't directly prohibit a performance. Their standard strategies was this one. You were poor, modest theater company, so of course you had to be in some dirty hall, whatever. Usually, the evening before premiere, from, from, uh, uh, no, uh, from sanitary service, some, some people came and inspect, oh, there is a danger of fire here, you, you know. And it was the same there. I did a talk, there were many people, so they put a big screen and some chairs in front of the house. We were half an hour into it when police came, nothing against me but that. Neighbors are complaining that we are making too much noise and so on. So, what happened to me there? You know that Alain Badius formula, quiet ici, et ici, which is meant for legalization of immigrants. Let's not screw them. Those who are here are from here. The rejection of this, we are Western racism, we are really here, no? But when I use this in Tel Aviv, some people cynically started to applaud me. You know why? Because they told me you just provided the best motto for West Bank settlers. Screw you Palestinians with our original, we are here, so we are from here, and so on and so on. So, you know, uh, it's easy to use these great phrases or whatever, things get complicated. So, screw you, if I may put it, you will not get over my dead body the Heidegger today. No. You will get it, uh, no, but uh, as I already told you, what I wanted to do is, on the one hand, to fully report on the horror of what Heidegger does because it is horrible. For example, not only the usual stuff, 
the danger of Welt, Judentum, World Jewry, and so on, uh, anti-Semitism which lasted to the end. But at the same time, he has a very weird, the most maybe terrifying that I've read, theory of Holocaust. He claimed that Jews stand for the spirit of technological manipulation of nature, exploitation and so on. And in, he claimed that Holocaust was ultimately ontologically just a Selbstvernichtung, self-annihilation of the Jews. Why? Because the principle that they introduce into the world, that they stand for, the principle of modern technology, which it's called manipulation, industrial destruction, was just logically brought to the end, applied to them. So he explicitly said the Germans who did the Colossus were just unconscious tools of the Jewish self-annihilation. Okay, you find horrors like this, but nonetheless, I claim that uh, uh, what is wrong is, I remember the title of the review of these black notebooks in Guardian, where they say, it's now proven something like that, Heidegger's uh, philosophy is in its very core, at its core, Nazi. No, it's not, I claim. It's strictly secondary. By saying secondary, I'm not saying it's not important. It has a symptomatic value. For me, it's absolutely legitimate to ask the question, how was it possible for Heidegger to fall into that? But he fell into that. And the proof is, the problem are, and I think they are the true target of this campaign against Heidegger now. We have many, I don't agree with them. But they are definitely leftist, people from Jean-Luc Nancy to, uh, to Gianni Vatimo, to, I don't know, Rainer Schurman who died and so on, up to a point John Caputo. Definitely, let's call them leftist Heideggerians. Should we dismiss them as people who are simply too stupid to understand Heidegger properly? Even, did you read it? A black activist in the United States, after this black book notes were published, he wrote a wonderful text like why a Nazi philosopher helped me in my fight for black identity, something like that. A wonderful example of how, with the reference to Heidegger's thinking, he was able to theorize his and so on. So what I'm saying is this. I would like to do with Heidegger the same as I tried to do with Wagner. If anything, at the level of his private statement and so on, Wagner was even more disgusting than Heidegger in his anti-Semitism and so on. But I claim that uh, this historicist contextualization, you know, you demonstrate how in the conclusion, is not the ultimate truth about the work. That's the general, as it were, aesthetic ontological thesis that I wanted to make. That a great work of art is defined precisely by the fact that it can survive its decontextualization. Marx struggles with this in that famous passage of his introduction to Grundrisse, you know, when he asks, why do we still admire uh, uh, Homer, ancient Greek literature? He says it's clearly that it was conditioned 
by that early stage of development. So why do we still, he says very nicely, the mystery is not how it was possible there. The mystery is why do we still enjoy it. Marx, unfortunately, I think gives a catastrophically wrong evolutionary answer. He says because Greeks stand for the innocence of our childhood. And we as mature men, we, uh, uh, I think this is even a potentially anti-Semitic point because you know, in typical romantic mythology to which Marx refers there, uh, implicitly, Greeks were the good, aesthetic children, and haha, Jews were the bad, not children, you know. But what I want to say is that, uh, look, this is why Shakespeare is great. You can have a classicist Shakespeare, romantic Shakespeare, even postmodern Shakespeare, and so on. And this is, so my point is that, uh, let's take an opera which is full of anti-Semitic texture, details. But isn't it the most beautiful thing for me as an old Wagnerian, how Wagner was recently totally kidnapped. It's almost now Wagner is the favorite opera composer for left Jewish opera directors, you know. And it was a triumphant operation, because Wagner nonetheless was a true artist, which means in his very work, if you read it closely, he already staged a distance, even a self-refusal of his anti-Semitism. And I claim, in the same way, Heidegger was an authentically great philosopher. Which means that you cannot say this modern leftist readings simply misread Heidegger. No, there is no proper reading. Heidegger is open, is not inconsistent. There is no ultimate truth about Heidegger. It's like, you know, the famous metaphor by Walter Benjamin of you have an image for which developers are only discovered later, so it's only afterwards, from a different context, that you can see the truth. We should accept the same for Heidegger. Even if you look incidentally at the level of facts, they are much more complex. I think Heidegger was opportunistically anti-Semitic, but he always followed the fashion. For example, it's now confirmed from memoirs. Do you know that in the 60s, even before, Heidegger systematically voted for Willy Brandt for social democrats? And so on. It's incredible. I mean, so, you know what I mean? Like, uh, I, I'll put it like this. I believe in theory, which means I don't accept that you look in dirty private secrets and then, oh, this is the true core of theory. No, theory has, in the same as art, Wagner's work has an autonomy. You can decontextualize it and you get the truth. The truth is, and this is for me the only proper Marxist approach even, Marxism is not this cheap historicism. Marxism is always a proper formalism. Okay, you will get this one, yes please. Yes, yes. Um, can you say a little bit about how on the one hand, it is persuasive, this idea that power has to be secret, right? And so this what yeah. you were saying about how the kind of performance yeah. of yeah. friendship. But how does that live simultaneously with the very real violence and increased militarization and brutality of how power also is exercised? Right? So I would have said that precisely this anonymization of power where nobody wants to fully stand for the power, we are all human. 
wonderfully opens up the space for even greater actual brutality. But this is what I also tried to hint at yesterday. This is the paradox of our time. On the one hand, this extreme sensitivity, you know, I look you into the eye, I visually rape you, uh, all these trigger warnings. This is for me strictly the obverse of the growing actual brutality of our times. We are much more, uh, uh, as I wrote, what worries me more than those who openly, uh, I wrote this about, apropos Guantanamo and so on, all the debate waterboarding. The true horror for me is not those who openly advocate torture. They are, the true ethical fiasco for me are those who, even if they oppose it, accept it as a legitimate topic of a debate. And that is for me a big ethical fiasco, a big victory of our enemies, that we even have to debate about it. You know, it's like the example that I already used here. I don't want to debate about should we rape women or not. I want to live in a society where you don't debate this. Even if we agree that we shouldn't uh, rape women, but the way I would, if all of a sudden we would have to debate and argue for it, it would have been something horrible. So what I what I would have said is that this is what characterizes our times, and I even claim that we who live in our cocooned Western societies have a wonderful medium of neutralization. It's the TV news, you know, there you see all the horrors, but it's on screen, it's not part of your world. Which is why for Americans it was such a trauma, the September 11. I mean, what they were up till that point looking only on screen, there it really, uh, it really, it really happened. So again, uh, back to your point. I don't see any problem here because this, the brutality of today's power is not the old brutality of a total tyrant, you know, it's anonymous administrative brutality, it's brutality done by people who, that's the horror. But it's not secret, it's not masked. No, so uh, what is secret that... is more or less the power structure, because, ah, it's more complicated, I would have said this. It's not secret, but it's nonetheless disavowed in its very visibility. Like, you see, I always remember the Iraq war, how we saw all those pictures of precision, so-called, precision bombing and so on, but you rarely saw the destruction down there. Like, it's all there, but it's extremely controlled as to at what level does it uh, affect you, and so on and so on. On the other hand, it's not secret, I would say this. Yes, I totally agree with you, but it's still disavowed. That's why, I will give you another example. I think, to be provocative, Edward Snowden and Wikileaks are important, although we really, let's face it, didn't discover anything really new. My God. Who didn't already at least suspect it, that we are all listening? You know why? Because our everyday attitude was everyday conformist majority. We know they are doing it, we know, but we don't want to know it. Let them do it secretly, discreetly. I think the main target of WikiLeaks are not those who are doing the tortures, but it's our hypocrisy. We cannot any longer play the game that we don't know. It. We ordinary people are 
corner here. We are ordered enjoined to, we cannot pretend that we don't know it. And this is extremely important. For example, this is the importance about Khrushchev's 20th Congress speech condemnation of uh, Stalin. Why did it have such a shocking impact? Did anyone learn anything really new there? Absolutely not, I claim. Everyone knew it. Just, they were not able to pretend that they don't know it. That's why so many communist nomenclatura members even uh, killed, uh, killed themselves and so on. Sorry, but I don't want to eat other person's time. And you have some stupid coffee now or whatever, no? <laughs> I would prohibit coffee every day. I don't know which is, are you British? If you are British, how can you drink tea with milk in it? It's a practical how to be an alien satirical writing of George Mike. He has there the best theory of tea with milk. He develops how British people enjoy tea, but they enjoy it too much. So they wanted to find simple means to make it disgusting. And then they made many tests and they discovered that if you put milk into it, it looks more like, you know, after you after you wash your dishes, the dirty water that they make. So that this is for me the only meaning of adding milk to it. Okay, tomorrow we have the big two hours theoretical.